Good morning. Welcome to a new season of the church as today we celebrate the first Sunday of Advent. Now, Advent, when I was growing up, only meant that every evening I got to open up this little board and get to eat a piece of chocolate. That was the extent of my Advent experience. But we hope to make this Advent much more meaningful than just enjoying chocolate or looking forward to when we open gifts. This is the time of year where we get to intentionally and proactively look back as those that were waiting to receive the Messiah in their presence. And we get to look forward to with longing, waiting expectations for Jesus to come again. Advent is a season about learning to wait and wait upon the Lord. And so as we continue in the book of Daniel, as we continue to engage the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel, we know that these prophecies are given to an expectant, waiting, longing people, especially in Daniel, in the midst of exile, waiting for their relief to come. And so we, like them, will join them in this Advent season of waiting on the Lord and doing it proactively, not just passively waiting and just twiddling our thumbs. But what does it mean for us, God's people, to wait expectantly, to wait in the midst of this broken world and wait in a way that joins Jesus in what he's doing in our midst? And so as we look at Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see what it looks like to um, suffer in the midst of waiting and how that suffering brings us to the heart of God. So Daniel chapter 8 is a a prophecy that uh, happens two years after chapter 7. This is happening in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. And in this prophecy, Daniel gets a picture of these two animals. The first one is a ram. This ram has two different horns signifying the power that this ram has. And rams, biblically, were a picture of rulers and authorities, okay? So keep that in mind as we get into the interpretation. After the ram comes this goat. This goat dominates the ram and quickly, swiftly, um, without touching the ground, it says in verse 5, comes in and takes over uh, the rulership of everything else. But this um, goat goes away quickly and out of it there are four horns um, that go towards the four winds of heaven. Remember, horns are powers. So out of this um, ram comes, excuse me, out of the goat comes these four kingdoms. And one of these four is called the little horn. This one is a little bit more, gets more attention. This one becomes exceedingly great. And it focuses its attention, its greatness, its power, and its rule on the people in Jerusalem. It goes about overthrowing the sanctuary, taking away the burnt offerings, And so it it focuses its attention on those. And at the end of this day, at the end of it in verse 14, 
It says, how long is this going? This vision going to be? And it says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. And so this, this prophecy, we, a lot of people, when they go to biblical prophecy, they go to it with the expectation that all of it is future-oriented. It's all. But for Daniel and the hear, original hearers, this was a future-oriented prophecy. But for us... This is a historical prophecy. What do I mean by that? The prophecy has already been fulfilled. And so we find this out in the interpretation. <clears throat> um, we see that the ram, are the, those are the kings of Medea and Persia in verse 20. Verse 21, this talks about the goat being the king of Greece. This is the historical figure of Alexander the Great. We know historically that Alexander grew uh, that empire rapidly, but he died at a young age of 32, and out of him, four generals took the rulers of him and separated that. That's the fulfillment of what takes in, uh, place in verse 8 of this. And out of that kingdom of generation or two later comes the little horn, which is the historical figure of Antiochus IV in the 2nd century B.C., we know historically that he um, ravaged the Israelite people. He even made Judaism illegal in his tenure. And so this is a picture of him. He ruled six years, which is about 2,300 years, which is in the ballpark of what this, uh, how prophecy works. And so this is a picture of a prophecy being fulfilled in the time before Jesus. But I want you to pay attention to this. This is a prophecy that is foreshadowing or um, projecting that there will be suffering for God's people. Daniel is getting a picture of his people. While, now they're back in Israel. They're back in that. He's getting a picture that those people, when they are back, are going to suffer they're going to experience pain. They're going to experience loss under the thumb and rule of that little horn. And this did come to pass. Now, Daniel received a vision, a prophecy that his people would suffer in the future. And that idea, that reality, that suffering is an inevitability happens in the New Testament. James 1 says we should count it all joys when we suffer. The Bible doesn't say if we suffer or if there will be pain in life. The Bible is very honest. It says when we suffer. <clears throat> James 15, 20. These are the words of Jesus. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. So as Daniel told his listeners that there will be suffering, Jesus and the New Testament authors tell us that there will be suffering in our lives. And you, no matter how long you've lived, you know this to be true. Suffering is a part of the human experience. And it's a difficult part. But what does it look like for us? 
How do we engage in and be part of and experience suffering while we wait for Jesus to ultimately return? So before I give us a few uh, practical ways that this looks, let me um, start this with a few truths about suffering. And I've already said the first one. The first truth is that suffering is inevitable. This is a part of the human experience that we have. While we do everything we can in our culture to limit the amount of suffering, to have comfort, that amount of work will never take away the reality that there is suffering, pain, and loss in this world. It's an inevitability. Secondly, all suffering is a result of sin. Now, I want you to be pay very close to attention to what I'm saying. <clears throat> I'm not saying that you suffer because of your sins or your active rebelling or your active thoughts, okay? So <clears throat> what I'm not saying is that your suffering is a result or a fruit of your sins against God. What I'm saying is sin itself is, has pervaded all of society. There is not an area in which sin has not touched. And so because the world is not in the perfection that God designed it and he has not returned yet, that means that sin is still at work. Whether it's my personal sins that lead me to suffering, some suffering is self-inflicted. That could be part of it. But it could be the sin of other people. It could be the injustices and the sin that's systemic or society-wide that's part of the world order that we live in. It could be an activity of the, the, the evil one. Okay? So I'm not saying it's yours, but there is sin is in the backdrop of suffering. Another way to say that is God did not intend for suffering to happen. God did not intend for and did not create sin. That's a result of man's rebellion. So while we look for and wait for that day when there's no more sin, suffering, pain, or death, we know that sin is still active, which means that suffering is still um, there. The third thing is that um, suffering is not for comparison. Okay, This is what I mean by that. I've talked to many people, and I've done this myself, and when you hear the stories of other people's suffering, you start to, and especially if you perceive that their suffering ha is uh, on a scale higher than your suffering, it tends to cause us to diminish the effects of our suffering. We say, oh, what I went through is not that bad. I mean, if I... It's not that, or at least I didn't. It, we start to compare suffering. But what that does is that diminishes the reality of the effects that pain and suffering has on our lives. And if we diminish it, we're not able to look at it truthfully and honestly. And, by, and when we don't face it Honestly, we will not be able to experience the healing and the comfort that God can give. So when we compare it, 
where we say, oh, mine's way worse than theirs. Or what's more likely is we say, oh, theirs is way worse than mine. We're not able to truthfully face the pain that we have, the truth of the, of the bodily experience of sadness or pain or grief. We don't tr- uh, face those facts of what we've experienced, and therefore we're not able to experience the healing. So suffering is not for compromise, but lastly, suffering is redeemable. It is redeemable. Suffering is not the end of the story. Second um, Corinthians one four. This uh, we'll use this verse again in a second. Um, it says, uh, verse three: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and listen, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God, okay? Our pain, our afflictions, our pain can be comforted by God. And as a result of being comforted by God, healed by God, restored and redeemed by God, we out of that comfort can comfort other people. It's redeemed comfort. It's not fully redeemed when Jesus returns and renews and restores all creation. That is a day that will come, but we can experience the redemption of it here and now in our midst. So if that's true of suffering, if that's true of what it means to wait while we suffer, what can we do in the midst of suffering or in the midst of seeing other people suffer? For quick things for us. The first thing is repentance. Repentance. Sometimes the suffering that we are experiencing, the pain we are experiencing is self-inflicted because of our own sin. If this is something that we have done to ourselves, this is a wonderful opportunity to express the gift of repentance to have a change of mind, to change our worship from a false God to a true God, to confess our sins to our Father and to one another so that we can be healed. So sometimes, we, while we suffer in the midst of waiting, repentance is it. But sometimes it's not repentance. Sometimes it's not a result of my active participation with my sinful nature. So secondly, what we could lament, lament. Um, we see this a lot in the Psalms. Psalm 13, verse 1, it says, Oh, how long, O Lord, uh, how long will you turn your face from me? How long will it be until you remember me? Okay, so this lament is seeing the difference between the true kingdom of God reality and the real experience of this world and bringing the complaint of that difference to God. It's saying, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is wrong. This is not how you design the world. This is unjust. And we bring that lament to him who can hold and carry that reality with us. So sometimes 
it's repentance. Sometimes it's lament. Taking the time to express our complaints about how the difference of the world should be and how it's not currently and bringing that to God. And that enters us into the presence of God where he can bring ultimate comfort. The third thing of what is suffering while waiting is one that I'll say is not necessarily our personal suffering, but when we see a suffering of somebody else, this is solidarity. So if we have repentance, laments, the third is solidarity. This is being present with others in the midst of their pain. So it's not having a, so much of a preoccupi- um, being preoccupied with our own suffering. It's looking beyond ourselves, outside of ourselves. This is where 2 Corinthians 1.4 comes in, where we comfort others regardless of what affliction they are going through. A lot of times we believe the lie, oh, I, I didn't have that experience, so I can't comfort them. But 2 Corinthians does not say that. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says that with we've received comfort from God in our affliction so that we can comfort others in any affliction. So the comfort I've received from God, I can enter into that. I can bear one another's burdens. I can enter in solidarity with solidarity to their suffering to be present with them, not to solve, not to be the solution, not to fix, but primarily just to be present with them. This is also the dynamic when we see injustice in our day, when we see others taking advantage of, when we see the systemic injustices that affect different portions of our society, we can enter into that level of suffering with them, bear their burdens, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, but carry the weight with them as well. So we sometimes it's repentance. That's what it means to suffer while waiting. That's what we do. Sometimes it's lament. Sometimes it's solidarity. Uh, and what I'll say is fourth and last is it's f- having faith. What do I mean by that? It's believing the truth and the true things about God even when our circumstances don't show it. That's faith. It's trust. It's dependence. My circumstances and my suffering want to tell me that God is not good. But I know that God is good. So I have a choice. Which will I believe? Which will I stand on? Which will I follow? Faith is saying, I'm going to follow what I know to be true about God revealed in the scriptures and revealed through the personal work of Jesus. He's good. Even if I don't sense it. He's loving, even if I don't feel it. He's present, even if I feel him to be absent. I'm going to close our time with two quotes from C.S. Lewis. The first is in a book um, called The Screwtape Letters. This is uh, a, a satire telling of a demon and his apprentice and how he goes about encouraging that apprentice to um, demonize, if you will, that human. And so this is what it says in Screwtape Letters. Our cause, this is the demon speaking to his apprentice, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, 
but intending to do our enemy or God's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him, God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's the picture of faith. Even when it seems like God is gone, even when it seems like God is not good, the cause of the enemy and the cause of the kingdom of God is one that looks around and even if there's no, quote, evidence, even when it seems like we've been forsaken, we still obey. And that's because Jesus is the fulfillment of all these. He died so that repentance could be received. He entered into Jerusalem lamenting, Oh, Jerusalem, if only you had. He he knows, knows what could have been and sees what is and laments and weeps over what was. He took on our flesh and he became a human. That's what we look forward to in the birth of Jesus is the incarnation of Jesus, the ultimate picture of solidarity with us. But ultimately, it was his faith, his dependence on God, his kindness and goodness on the cross and in his resurrection that allows me to put my faith in him. Even when I'm faithless, he was faithful for me. This is all a picture of Jesus. And ultimately, in the midst of our suffering, we get to enter into, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount when it said, blessed are those who mourn, We get to enter into a new experience of God in the midst of our suffering. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says this, Problem, excuse me, pain insists upon being tended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Brothers and sisters, friends, I don't know what pain and suffering you are or have experienced, but it is an invitation for you and I to enter into trusting in God, putting, depending upon Him, to experience Him in a whole new way. Does it solve all the problems? Not necessarily, but it gives us a comfort and empowerment a trust and dependent, a solidarity with the Most High God that will sustain us through the present and future sufferings while we wait for Him to come and renew and fix all of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you that as Daniel prophesied about a coming suffering, that we know that suffering is inevitable, but in its inevitability, we also know it's redeemable, and that's because you are present with us in the midst of it. Jesus, I pray for those who are suffering now. May they see your goodness and grace in the midst of it. May they sense your presence, your comforting spirit, even right now in this moment. God, I pray for those that don't have their faith in Jesus. 
may they see that their suffering is God's megaphone to draw them to your goodness. In this season of waiting, God, help us come to you. Help us experience your presence as we learn to be faithful in exile. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.